Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We are so glad that you are here. And uh, thanks for those of you catching this online because you're traveling or doing your thing or watching this on replay. We're glad you make it happen as well. Uh, I'd like to start by uh, thanking today's sponsor, uh, Highlighter.com, uh, for today's message. Um, we get, uh, this is my soccer jersey. They're playing right now. So keep this silencio on the score, por favor. Thank you. Um, and uh, we are finishing off a series today called Wandering in the Dark. If this is your first time, uh, you picked a great day to come check us out. Thanks for doing it. And you picked the right time to come to because normally we do this at 10.15, or sorry, 9.15 and 10.30, but today just the one service because of the holidays. So next week, back to the normal schedule, all that good stuff. You'll have your chairs. It'll be, it'll be nice and roomy once again. Don't worry. Um, and uh, so we are on part six of a series called Wandering in Darkness. It's a series on suffering because anytime you've been gone, gone if you've ever gone through suffering, you can feel like, uh, you know, life is a little bit like in, in it for a moment, for a season, maybe for a long time, unfortunately, life just feels like a bunch of wandering around there. And we said there's a couple of ways to deal with this uh, and, and working through a question, how or why does a good God or could a good God allow suffering? Um, and you can deal this, with this theoretically, like, you know, around a campfire or in a college classroom, uh, but uh, a, a more uh, potent, a more familiar, a more tangible sort of thing is um, this comes up when you're going through suffering, when, when it's not just theoretical, but it's practical, and I'm currently suffering. Uh, and then also it matters a little bit about, like, what kind of suffering are we talking about? Because there's different forms and variations uh, of suffering. And so we've been looking at four different perspectives uh, of suffering at uh, looking through four biblical characters who show up, going through their story, going through their narrative about what they experience and how that kind of shapes ours. And we said that uh, there can be innocent sufferers, and, and that might be you, like you've done nothing wrong, and yet you find yourself suffering. That's a, that's a painful one. That one really drags that question. Well, how, why could a, how could a good God allow me to suffer this? After all, I've done nothing wrong, right? And we said, Job has so much to say about that. We even spent three weeks talking about uh, Job in that way. And then we said, on the other side of the spectrum of completely innocent towards the, uh, the side of, well, I've, I've done a few things. I'm still suffering. I'd still like to make sense of my suffering, but uh, you are not under any pretense to be like, I don't know why I'm suffering because your spouse would look at you and be like, come on. I mean, you know, decisions, poor whatever, consequences uh, of our decisions, however long in the past uh, have caused us to experience some suffering. So Samson's story kind of helped us work through that. But most of life is spent in the middle. We're, we're neither completely innocent nor totally and fully guilty. Uh, we kind of find ourselves in that, like, I'm not perfect, but I, I do experience um, some things. And one of those things last week was like the story of Abraham and how you have like Abraham was like living with this. I just really want this. And I feel convicted. Like I'm going to have this big family. I'm going to have these big descendants. He had his heart's desire set on something. If you've ever had your heart's desire set on something and it hasn't come through and it continues to not come through, even though you're fully convinced, like I should get that. Like I should, this is what I absolutely want in life. Why is it taking so long for it to arrive? And why am I living? I'm suffering through, through uh, loss of this, or it's just not going to work out. It's not going to happen. Um, or it, it's so close and yet whatever, um, then there's some stuff there. So today, though, we're, we're jumping into a story uh, from uh, John chapter 11, uh, Mary of Bethany, the suffering 
of Mary of, of Bethany. And John chapter 11 is probably more famously known. Uh, in fact, if you brought your Bible or, or have a Bible at home, and a lot of them have like little subheadings about here's what you're about to read, right? Here's, your, here's the summary statement of, of what you're about to read. It's the raising of Lazarus. Uh, but I'd like to retitle that because the story I don't think is as much about Lazarus, although he plays a big prominent role and you'll see why. Uh, but uh, there, there, in terms of the perspective of suffering, um, there's, there's a massive piece about Bethany or Mary of Bethany, a story about Mary and suffering caused by ordinary heartbreak and shame. So we're going to dive into a couple of the verses here together with our time this morning. Um, the verses are going to be on the screen. They're also on a little notes thing if you, you know, want to kind of follow through. Or if I fly too fast through a few of the verses, there's an app that you can download. And um, all of the stuff that is on the screen is going to be on there as well. So John chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Uh, here's what it says. A man named Lazarus was sick. So Lazarus is the first one to be mentioned, you know, so you would think that this is about him. But then look at how it's characterized after this. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured out uh, the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. That's going to show up in next chapter, but he's bringing it into this chapter, kind of prefacing this and kind of setting the stage for this. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So even in this moment, um, like Lazarus is being identified through his sister. And if, you've, if you grew up with like a famous sibling, and I say famous, like I just mean they were like super popular in school and you like go, hi, my name's so-and-so. And everybody's like, oh, nice to meet you. And you're like, I'm, I'm so-and-so's sister. And they're like, oh, oh, nice to meet you. You know what it's like to live under the shadow of somebody else, right? Um, the author assumes Mary to be the most well-known person in connection to this family, and it does immediately reflect a, a unique living situation. A, uh, a brother is living with two sisters. They seem to be adults. They seem to have no kids, uh, no spouses. Um, even in, you know, in modern-day scenario, uh, three adult children living together in their, into their 30s and 40s would be like, oh, that's kind of a unique situation. You, you would say, I wonder what the story is there. Um, that's absolutely true uh, for this place as well as less common uh, then than it is even now. And the perception is, you know, perhaps, there, and this is maybe reading into it, but I, I don't think it's a far off guess. Perhaps there was something uh, wrong with Lazarus. Perhaps there were some needs that were, that, that sisters decided, you know, I'm gonna forego getting married and, and uh, your phone's right over there, just so you know. Um, I, I heard it, I don't know whose watch is going off, but it's right there. Um, then, uh, then uh, it's like this, this, these, these sisters who go, you know, for the sake of our brother who we love, um, who can't probably handle life on his own, we're going to take care of him. So I think that's probably the context for what's going on. And then it talks about a place called Bethany. Bethany's a, a really kind of famous place uh, in the New Testament, especially in Jesus' sort of uh, roundabout ways of going through things. It's a place that they portray, that the authors, all four gospel writers, not just John, as we're looking at here, but all four writers, portray as a place very, very familiar for Jesus. Um, it's the place where he goes to kind of um, get away from uh, things, uh, to escape from the crowds, to spend a night in safety. It's the place where he calls and says, go get a donkey from Bethany. I'm about to go into Jerusalem and I want to go in, not on a huge horse, but on a meek donkey. And that donkey is going to be uh, in Bethany. Um, it's, it's the place he goes to after he, uh, right before he ascends, um, after his resurrection. And three of the Gospels mention Bethany as a place where Jesus' feet is anointed by a woman. Um, and there's connections that'll show up later where I think that this is true. That Jesus, all in all, seems to have a soft spot for Bethany. 
right? And most likely, um, if you have a soft spot for a place, it might be because of the scenery, it might be because of the landscape or whatever, but a lot of times it's because of the people there. You have a town and you're like, I just love that place. And when you say I love that place, you love the people who live in that place, right? And so that's why you go and it's got good memories, fond memories for you. That's the setup for this. Verse three, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your very dear friend or your dear friend is very, very sick. So by now, we're 11 chapters into John's story of the person and the life of Jesus. Jesus has gone on a healing sort of tour. This is kind of what he does. He's drawing crowds. He has words of wisdom for sure, uh, but he uh, draws large crowds because he feeds people and he heals people. And if you've ever needed to be fed or needed to be healed and somebody's meeting those needs, it's no surprise that they would be popular at this point. Uh, So it's not surprising to have another request for help. Verse four, but when Jesus heard about this request from Mary and Martha, a place that he loves with people that he loves. He said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the son of God will receive glory from this. In other words, there's some sort of a plan in place that's going to happen with, with all of this. So although Jesus loved Mar- Mar- Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Now, typically, the greater the relationship, the faster the response time to bad news is, right? The more you know somebody, the more they share your DNA, uh, the more that you have an affinity towards them, the shorter the distance is between their cry for help and your response in their time of need. Uh, My sophomore, between my, uh, well, no, my junior, I guess my junior year of college, I came home, I was in Seattle going to school, and I came home, and we decided, it was January, to go play some pickup tackle football at Kamiakin High School in that field right in front. And do I play football? Look at me. I do not play football. I've never played football. I play flag, and that feels aggressive. And they decided, they decided we should play tackle. And you don't want to be the one guy that's like, I think we should play two-hand touch. You know what I mean? So... We play tackle football, and I sign up for it, and uh, about 30 minutes in, which is not surprising, my body goes one way, my ankle goes another, and I absolutely compound fracture. It's just, I don't want to get graphic with it, but like, it's just hanging on by skin, guys. It was just one of these things. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I'm laying on the ground. I realize immediately what happened, and I'm like in that shock phase, if you've ever broken an arm or broken a leg, where you're like... I know this is going to hurt. It kind of hurts. I know it's going to really hurt in a few minutes. And I'm laying there and um, I start to try and get up. And they're like, don't get up. <laughs> they're looking at this like, no, we need, we need to, because I'm like, I just, I just probably need to go into a, like a walking clinic. They're like, no, you need to call an ambulance. And, and then they say, is there anybody else that we can call for you? And I was like, yeah, just my dad, here's my phone. Call my dad and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And my dad answered the phone. I can hear him on the other line. And they're like, sir, your son's here. It's, he's got a broken ankle. Um, they're the, we've already called the ambulance. They're on their way. They're going to take him to Trio. So it wasn't Trio at the time. It doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, and the, I could hear my dad on the other line saying to them, I'll come in and see him tomorrow after two. I've got a haircut at one. <laughs> and I'll, I can squeeze him in afterwards. And I'm laying on the ground, writhing in pain, saying, that sounds, like, sounds right. Thanks, Dad. Love you. Right? <laughs> No, of course not. My parents like beat me to the hospital. I, we, I've never broken anything in my life. And it's not like they go, man, we would really love to come, but I just put cookies in. So I really, 
I really can't make it. The more you love somebody, the faster your response time. So immediately we're drawn to something within this story that something's, something's odd. And the author knows it too. Like that's why the, the preface is that although he loved them very much, he chose to stay where he was in spite of the bad news for two more days. That is a like, conflict in the story that if you're reading this, you should be like red flag, something's up, what's going on uh, with all of this? Uh, and there seems to be nothing negative in his reaction to the news that Lazarus is sick. Um, not even dismay or weariness at being called yet again. Everybody just wants me to heal them all the time, right? I'm so, you only like me because I can heal you. He doesn't say anything like that. If anything, his initial reaction seems almost positive, uh, almost as if he'd been waiting for something like this. Like this sickness, uh, he says, will result in glory. He was like waiting for something. He seems to have a plan. Like in this moment, um, there seems to be something going on, some wheels turning in this. He didn't create the sickness, but he can make use of it. He, he knows he's going to, in this moment, reveal God's power over nature for these people who are some of my favorites. And so I think he sees this and goes, here's a great opportunity to reveal the greatness of God, his power over creation, and to do something that's going to be a blessing, not to some random people who I don't know, but to people who I love in a place that I love, uh, surrounded by people that I love. So that's going to be a big deal. And I, I want to liken it to um, he, he's, he, in this moment, he's got a plan. He doesn't reveal this plan to them. He doesn't send a message to them. It's almost like he's planning this surprise party. If you've ever planned a surprise party, you know, I care for this person enough. I want to do a surprise party. I don't want them to know anything. And in the moment, they're gonna like, part of the plan is getting to the thing that everybody's forgotten about their birthday. If you've done it right, they're like, nobody loves me. Everybody forgot about my birthday. And you're like, <laughs> wait until four o'clock on Tuesday. They're gonna be blown away with all of this, right? And you do this for your favorite people. And I think that Jesus is like, I've got this plan. It's gonna be great. We're gonna raise lads from the dead. There's gonna be glory. They're gonna benefit from this, right? They're gonna be well known about this. I don't think he was like, I'm gonna force Lazarus to die. I think he was just like, this is a good opportunity. So then the question becomes, does the execution of this plan benefit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? The answer is, of course, yes, after the miracle and because of it. Their names are passed on and stories passed on rapidly in the surrounding society. As we'll see in the next chapter, People come from a long ways away to come visit the guy who died and then rose from the dead because that's what people do, right? I'm sitting over here, my friend Patty right here passed up, like died for 45 minutes and, and was resuscitated but with you know, EMTs and, and CPR and all kinds of stuff. And the next time that she walked in, you're like, I just want to go say hi, Patty. I want to touch you, you know? I want to I hug you. I want to say, what happened? What was it like? Did you see a great light? And she's like, no. And her husband's like, yeah, because it was the other, you know, anyways, no, <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I have no idea. But when you've met somebody, when you've met somebody who rose from the dead, you're like, can you sign an autograph? Can, can I meet you? Can I touch you? Tell me what it was like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, and there's a sense in which he picks these people for this because he trusts in them. He believes that they can handle it. And the phrase comes along of, you know, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers, whatever. And this is gonna make it all the more painful when the surprise party turns into a failure as we're gonna see. And by the way, if this is his plan, if he's got this great surprise party, I'm gonna do this thing, he's gonna die, but then I'm gonna come through and be like, here we go. He doesn't reveal any of this to any of them. He doesn't tell them, which maybe you're like, if you're gonna make somebody go through the pain and the loss of losing their brother, perhaps give them a little heads up that that's gonna happen. But on the flip side of that, if you've ever tried to go to the extent of throwing a surprise birthday party for somebody, you wanna do everything within your power to keep it a secret. It makes the reveal all that more pow much more powerful. You're not a good friend because you go, there are people coming over, it's gonna be great, act surprised. That's kind of a cheap way out, right? That doesn't work in that way. So the sister's message is simply this, that the one that you love is sick. 
Um, I know my translation was different, but the one that I grew up remembering about in th- this translation was Jesus, the one that you love, is sick. Not even having to mention his name, not even um, saying Lazarus. There seems to be like this very intimate connection. There's also no forthright request to come quickly. Notice even in whatever translation you read, it's not come quickly, the one that you love is sick. It's more just a statement of awareness of this. In other instances where Jesus is, is requested for help, um, the centurion comes up and he says, my daughter is sick. Would you please come to my house and heal her? Come, 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 come. Um, a leper says, if you'll touch me, I know I'll be healed. Uh, a woman comes up and wants, in all of these things, people are asking Jesus for something. But here it is noticeably absent for any request for Jesus to do something. Simply a, a statement that's out there. It's almost as if they don't want to have to ask because if they have to ask, then even if they get what they ask for, they're not getting what they actually want, which is twofold. One, to get the thing that I want, which is healing from my brother. But two, I don't want to have to ask for it. You, you know this because you've been, you bought a new outfit and you took it to your spouse and you'd be like, how do I look in this? And you say, the fact that I have to ask you about this and you would say, it's too bright. Don't wear it to church on Sundays. I know. <laughs> too bad. Uh, you, you would say, if I have to ask for it, like, what do you think? Am I, is this, does this look good on me? And you're like, yeah, yeah, it looks great on you. You're like, see, that's cheap. I mean, I want, I want you to say it's good. I don't want you to be like, no, it looks terrible. Change, you know, whatever. But I also would love it if it was not inspired by a question that I ask you. I would hope that we have the type of relationship that you would see that I want that and that you would do something about it. So these women asking Jesus, hey, the, the one that you love is sick, hint, hint, mm-hmm. come do something about it. If I have to ask you, then ugh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to cash those chips in our relationship, whatever. The nature of the sister's message to Jesus suggests that apart from their anxiety about Lazarus, they're also alive to what they feel like is a little bit of ambiguity in their relationship with Jesus. He matters greatly to them, and they believe that to some degree that they matter to him, but they're not exactly sure how much. They assume that they're special to him. On the other hand, they're not sure they're as important to him as he is to them. After all, he's famous and does all of these things and has all these resources, and we're just adult children who live together and with a sick husband, you know, sick brother, and you know, we don't have a lot to offer. We're in kind of a backwater town called Bethany, which is cute. It's formidable, but it's not Jerusalem, and it's not Galilee. It's not all of these things, right? They believe that they're close to him, which is why they can send their message in the way that they are, but they do not tell him openly what they want from him so as not to presume on a closeness they might not have. And he doesn't come. They send the message, they make sure that the message gets there, and then two days go by, or more days actually, by the time he says we're going to stay here for a couple days and he extends, even, extends it even longer. He doesn't come. And immediately they have to be thinking, maybe we weren't as meaningful to him as we thought we were. He's meaningful to us. We thought we were meaningful to him. But if he doesn't come and if he can't read between the lines, then maybe we were very, very confused. Maybe we thought we had an in and were important, but really we kind of fooled ourselves into thinking that we were worth something to him. So he then becomes the friend who didn't come. He's the friend who doesn't show up. He's the friend, you thought you had friends and then you went through something tragic 
and you reached out and you tried not to like post too much on Facebook and too much on social medias. Some people reached out, some people didn't. I mean, dude, was COVID not a huge revealer for like who's actually your friends and who's not your friends? You laugh now because we're like three years past it, but like it wasn't all that funny that fall, right? You're like, yeah, it sucked. It's a hard, emotionally draining sort of thing. And I can't imagine that it wasn't. It's the, it's the suffering of presuming I had access to something and that we were good, and then the realization that it might not be exactly what I thought it was going to be. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. And then John is careful to provide the details in case we as readers are not aware. We like, well, you know, it takes a long time to get there. No, Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. He did this intentionally as a choice, not because, yeah, tragic circumstances kept me away. And many of the people who had come Uh, And many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. And by the time Jesus is going to arrive in Bethany, the sisters will have had ample time first for like to go through the grieving process, dismay, disappointment, anxiety, stress over their brother getting sick, falling even sicker, perhaps with a different illness than what, you know, kind of kept them home. Then for pain and perplexity at the loss of him. And finally, the misery that comes with the extinction of hope uh, that can no longer be denied. Like this is it. That was it. There was a small window of opportunity for Jesus to do something he missed it. We missed it. When Jesus goes to Bethany with his disciples to raise Lazarus from the dead in a glorious miracle, what's waiting for him are two women who are heartbroken about their brother, but also about him. Yeah, we're super sad about our brother, but also there's some sort of a, a level of suffering about, about this thing too, because we thought it was something that it wasn't. Verse 20, when Mar- Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Seems plausible that they both had access to the same information about Jesus' arrival, but when they both knew that Jesus was finally coming, only one of them left the house to go meet him, and one of them chose to stay behind. Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever it is that you ask. I am frustrated with you. I am very, very mad. I, we, we lost something. But she holds on to this sort of glimmer of hope of, I've seen you do some pretty miraculous things. I, it's been four days. So like in, in, in a moment, he's going to go through the, I'm just going to reveal it to you. He raises Lazarus from the dead, you know, sorry to break that bubble. We're not going to go into that later. So, um, and right before he does, he's like, bring him out. And she's like, and he's been in there four days. Like he stinks. Or the King James Version says, he stinketh, which is so great. <laughs> He stinketh. It was my dad's favorite way to describe me in growing up in high school. I'd be like, you stinketh. John chapter 11, anyways. All right. Um, Martha's broad hint that he could help them even now has made his raising Lazarus look like an after. So she, she raises this idea, but I know that even now you could do something. And it's such a, he's in a tough position now because I think he wanted to do this the entire time. He's like, I trust these people. These people have like a deep faith. Like they're gonna go through this, but they're not gonna like get angry. They're not gonna get frustrated. They're gonna have ultimate trust that I'm gonna come through and be ultimately good. We've, we've said this the entire time. What is, is suffering, but uh, what, what is it to go through suffering except to hold on to that which says that God is good. And I don't know why this is experiencing this, but I hold on to the, the goodness of God. That no matter what, God is good. That this somehow will work out for my good. I don't know how, but it, He's good. That's his pattern. That's who he is. And he, he, he's saying, I know that they know me. Like we're close. We're tight. We're friends. They're going to know that I'm good. They're not going to understand why, but that's going to even make the surprise even that much more of a big deal. 
And then he shows up and she says, it didn't happen. You still have a chance to kind of redeem yourself. And so now he's stuck because he's like, if I raise him from the dead now, it's almost like, sorry, I hosed you the first time. Let me make it up to you by raising him now. She's kind of set this stage for perhaps like making him, not making him, but him doing this out of obligation now, not as like this really cool surprise. It's almost like, um, you know, now if she comes home and, and, from, and you've been planning a surprise party and it's never happened and then she comes and she's like, I just want a few people to come over. Do you think you could like call a few people and do a surprise party? And now if you try and do a surprise party, she's gonna be like, I was part of that. It wasn't, it's not that meaningful to me. And you're like, see, now I'm screwed. Cause I can't, if we do it, you're gonna think that I'd planned it and because of your response, cause you were so sad. If I don't do it, then I'm a jerk anyways. I think that's why the next phrase in the response from Jesus is as follows. Because it's a very confusing thing, right? But I think he's trying to kind of help navigate this difficult thing. Verse 23, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everybody else rises at the last day, right? He's going, don't worry, your brother, like this idea of resurrection, this idea of that death's not the end that Jesus would talk about all the time, that this life is, is this life, but there's life beyond this life. And she's like, I know, I know everybody goes to heaven. So great. But, right, she's like, preachy, preachy stuff. That's good. That's cute. But you could do something now for this. Jesus told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anybody who believes in me will live even after dying. Everybody who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? He's like steering the conversation. He's going, let me, let me steer this away from this situation. Let me perhaps still pull off this surprise party without you feeling like you were integrate, you know, integrate part of making this surprise party happen. Yes, Lord, she told him, I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world. Now, it's not hard to suppose that Mary stays in the house when Martha runs out to meet Jesus because Mary minds so intensely about Jesus' treatment of her that she doesn't care what he does now. It's not hard to suppose that she's the more bitter, that they, you know, we all cope differently with pain uh, in a different way. One of us uh, uh, attacks it aggressively and goes and tries to solve it and force an issue. The, some of us withdraw completely and be like, I'm not seeing him. I don't want to talk to him. He's got nothing for me. He knew what I needed. He knows where I live. He's got my phone number. He can Facebook me. He can DM me, whatever. Then she returned to Mary. Martha returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. Now, I think this is critical because there is a chance that Jesus could have been like, where's Mary at? And she's like, oh, she's back at home. Would you go tell her that I want to see her? That could have taken place, but it's not recorded for us. It's not in there. It's not, it, Jesus is not listed by John as requesting to see Mary. I like to think that this is more the sister who recognizes what's going on in the life of her sister who loves her so much and creates this story, this lie, that Jesus asked about you. He really wants to see you. She's like, he asked about me? He wants to see me? Yeah, you should go see him. Sometimes when, the, when, there's, when you're dealing with somebody whose coping mechanism is to withdraw, what they are desperately wanting is some sort of movement towards, I just want you to make the first move. And then you make one inch move and they just dive back in, right? Um, and I think that Martha recognizes this for her sister. And that's how this whole thing works. Mary then immediately went to him. Jesus stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was gonna go to Lazarus's grave to weep, so they followed her there. So now Mary's approaching Jesus. This is the first time Jesus is gonna see Mary after watching, you know, hearing about her brother dying, knowing, knowing that they've gone through this pain thing and that they haven't done 
what he thought they would do, which is what? Hold on to trust, trust that God is good, that there's a plan, that something's gonna work out. No, instead, they're mad, they're angry, they're bitter. Instead of coming out to meet me, it's very, very clear she withdrew and is playing this passive aggressive game with me. So it's almost as if like she's kind of failed the test a little bit and yet she's the one that's hurting. She feels betrayed about this. So it's like this weird, weird dynamic that's at play. And here she comes and not only her alone, but a crowd of people along with her who care about her. And so now he's doing this in this way. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. What do we notice about that? It's the same first few words that, Mar- that Martha says. When she arrives, either, either she said it exactly or John wrote it in as, cor- as exactly the correct. But either way, what's presented is the same exact response from two different sisters about you know, arguing or fighting over the same brother who died and, and mad at Jesus. And yet she doesn't go on. Her, her phrase stops here. Martha says, even so, I know now you could do whatever it is that you want and I'm gonna trust that you does this. Mary doesn't do this. She says, if you wouldn't have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she begins to weep bitterly at his feet. She doesn't really believe that. Or um, she doesn't have, she's not clinging onto the hope that Martha had. Her faith is a little bit more broken than that. And it's not as strong. And I think in this moment is when Jesus begins to realize like I've been plan, I've had this plan that I thought was gonna be great. Have you ever had a plan? You're like, this is gonna be so great. And then things happen and you're like, I think I've caused more hurt than hope. And I think that I just need to kind of scrap things and do something different. Sorry, the surprise party's off or it's gonna be a lot different than we were at. We're gonna, we were gonna do it Thursday. We're bumping it up because we need to do it now because the circumstances have changed and whatever. Her words begin the same, but the information those words communicate in this exchange is different. It's a rebuke. Martha exasperates Jesus and inspires him to this passionate speech about resurrection and, and, and life and what I come to offer and all this kind of stuff. But Martha is sensible and practical. Her distress is within bounds. Mary's distress is not. That's why she falls at Jesus' feet when she meets him. Verse 33 says this, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Now, it must now be powerfully apparent that while his plan for their ultimate good and their glory or whatever, it's precisely his plan that has left these women heartbroken, alienated from him. He's looking at it going, I think I've made a huge mistake. And I know that some people are like, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. I know, but there's, there's a sense in which he hoped, he wanted them to experience the fullness of trust that comes with watching circumstances crumble around you and doing this. And I think he's also lives with this, like he's fully God, fully human. I think he's living with this limited knowledge and, and going, this is, seems to be the best way forward. And I want something so badly for these kids. And you've done this. You've like, you've brought your kids. You've got them all psyched up for this like tryout sports, tryout thing. You're like, you're going to try out for this team. We're going to love it. You're going to play. You're going to represent the family. You're going to represent me. I'm going to live vicariously through you. You don't know that yet, but that's how this is going to work out. <laughs> And then they're in way over their heads and they hate it. And you just put this bad taste in their mouth and you realize as a parent, I think I set them up for failure. I don't think that they were ready. I think that this is me wanting them to be ready. I think this is me working through my own stuff. And I didn't ask them what they wanted. And um, it's, not, it's not that I did this because I'm malicious towards my child. I really wanted it to work out. I love my child. I want them to experience what it's like to be on a team and win and but like, that's not ultimately what is best for them. And I think in this moment, he realizes 
that this is what's going on. So he's angry. He's not angry at her lack of faith in terms of, I expected more of you, right? That's not it, clearly. Um, he's deeply troubled in the fact that I think I caused some of this to happen. In a sense, they failed the test. Her belief in him and her commitment to him were not strong enough to carry her through the suffering when he never came. He thought that they would be strong enough that they could remain steadfast in, time, in spite of the circumstances, but the circumstances proved to be difficult. So he goes, we got to change the plan. I was going to wait and make this a big show, but I realized the pain that I've caused. So new plan, change. Verse 34, where have you put him? He asked them. I love it. It's like, it's kind of like one of those faces where in the movie, like it's the pan shot from like the eyes come up and you're like, oh, here we go. Neo's about to break some bones. You know what I mean? He's about to stop some bullets. Let's make it happen. It's like the shift, like the music starts going. You're like, now here's where we kick butt, right? And I'll let you finish the story on your own time. As I mentioned, I'm not going to go through all that. It's a good one. You should read it. It's great. But I want to read the epilogue for you because in the next chapter, this is because again, this isn't the story. We're trying to look at this not through the story of Lazarus and the suffering that he went through, but the suffering of Mary and, and that kind of a suffering. To have your hopes pinned on a relationship that you thought was going to be, he loves us. He's going to do something. He doesn't. And then to, I've, I've failed this test and, and them realize after the fact he was going to do this the entire time. Them realizing after the fact, like you, you've ruined this. Like, you, you know, you've walked into the surprise party and you open the door angry at all your friends for not loving you. And they're like behind the couch going, surprise. And you're like, oh, crap. And you realize I've ruined this. I think that Mary and Martha both realized after the fact, we should have trusted him the whole time. Like we just, we just couldn't do it. Like we weren't strong enough. We weren't, we weren't locked in enough. We were, we're too human. We're too um, something. And so I think that later they would realize that Jesus did in fact love them, that they did have that relationship. And it was because of that relationship that he presented them with the circumstances that he presented them with which is why the epilogue story goes like this, chapter 12, verses one through three. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he'd raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. And then Mary took a 12 ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. You got some of that lying around the house anywhere? <laughs> in spite of its name, a very expensive perfume. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it. Poor marketing for that product, by the way. That's poor marketing. Let's, let's workshop some other titles there. Wiping his feet with her hair. The story shows Mary at the feet of Jesus twice. The first time she falls in the weight of suffering and heartbreak and uncontrollable tears. The next time she's got tears again, but it's tears for a different reason. Because in that moment, she realized just how much he actually did did aspire for her goodness and did have a plan for her goodness, even though she failed to recognize it in the, in, in the moment and, and failed the test. And yet he loved her anyways. He went through with the process. And he's like, well, now I'm not gonna raise your brother from the dead. You failed the test. That's not how he works. His goodness is not conditional upon your response to it. He, he knows that he knows and she knows I missed out on a really good opportunity, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. It doesn't mean his goodness isn't still there. It just means that I didn't grow as much as I could from it. And she realizes this later and, and has this deep affection for Jesus uh, once again. And, 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 and I, so how does this affect us and how does this work through us? Listen, we go through heartbreak and I, I mentioned shame um, as well in this because 
you know, there's a shame for her of, there's, there's a perception perhaps that she was the woman who was at Simon's house, who was known as the town kind of prostitute. Like she had this job trying to take care of her brother, raise enough money to take care of her brother that she'd go to great lengths to be able to make that happen. And you can interpret that how you want, right? And so um, there's, there's, there's this, this like, there's this shame that's involved in that. And yet when he looks at her, he says, your sins are forgiven to her. And he's like, you don't have to live like that. We can, let's talk through some of this. We can work through that. And then later all of this happens. So she's, she's a person who knows what shame is all about. And then to experience restoration from a time where she was supposed to like succeed in this test because he had such high hopes for her. There's a shame again, yet he continues to love her, continues to love her. And in spite of all that, he sees the goodness or she sees the goodness that is uh, present for her. And, and she's got nothing left to do, but weep at his feet and wash his uh, feet with her hair and her, and her tears in this very expensive perfume. So I, I think that that kind of story is a lot more in line with perhaps where we find ourselves. We're not really Job because we're not innocent sufferers. We're not really Samson because we're not like, we can be, but we're not like the lost potential. We had all this potential and then we just wasted it, right? We're usually somewhere in the middle. We experience shame, heartbreak, and loss. We get set up for tests of faith and we're like, should I trust Jesus with my finances in this moment? Should I trust him with this relationship? Should I trust him in this season of singleness or divorce or brokenness? And, and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we're like, God's good. I'm gonna cling on to that goodness. And other times we, we, we struggle and we, we shake our fist at God and we go, how could a good God allow suffering somebody like me in this situation? And he's up there, and I, I promise you, if nothing else in this series, this series has been entirely about God is good. It's, it's his goodness. He asks you to cling to his goodness. That Job is rewarded for clinging to his goodness, saying, I will not serve a God who is not good. He's like, you're right. You're right to hold on to that. Boo on your friends who told you, you must have done something wrong. That's not how God's goodness works. That's not how it works. But you will go through, you know, suffering in this life. And when you do, and when you do find yourself wandering in darkness, there is a good God who does have it under control, who has a surprise party planned for us. And I think that um, uh, that surprise party is not always resolution in this life that it will turn out good, but that there is goodness, even though we might not understand what that goodness means. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.